0: Five, four, three, two, one, zero. Ignition. Lift off. Hey everybody, I'm Brian Clapp, VP of Content and Engaged Learning at WorkinSports.com, and this is the WorkinSports Sports Podcast. I'm no psychiatrist. I barely understand why I do what I do, but I can tell you that fear is a pretty insane driving force. Chased by a bear. You'll run faster than you ever have before have a big test tomorrow that determines the status of your scholarship. You'll study harder than ever. Fear is an incredible motivator. Well, actually scratch that fear makes us uncomfortable. And we as humans try our hardest to return to our comfort zones. That's the human condition. We like to get into comfortable spots and build a house there. So yes, fear contributes to the motivation. But really, it's this idea of being locked into a fearful state that motivates us to get out of it. Okay, let's not get all nuanced and into the psychobabble. Suffice it to say, if you're sitting on your couch doing nothing and a raccoon comes in through the window, after screaming, you'll move fast. The fact that the remote was just out of reach, or you needed water, or the Doritos on the countertop, didn't get you to move, but that damn raccoon sure did. Fear works. I've interviewed many entrepreneurs over my career and they are a different breed. You think their motivation comes from money. I'm gonna make this thing, I'm gonna sell it to Apple for a billion dollars, but that's not it, it's not the money. Success is the goal, legacy, developing something completely new, disrupting a marketplace, changing the world. That is what entrepreneurs seek. Like an artist, they are consumed by their passion for their vision. And more importantly, to put a fine point on it, they are ruled by fear. What if this isn't it? What if my idea doesn't work? What if people don't like it? What if it doesn't disrupt? What if I am not special? This fear drives entrepreneurs to work harder and with more passion and focus than most others can reach. Failure to them is not an option. Because of this passion and focus, many entrepreneurs aren't willing to pivot from their original idea. They stick to their vision with steadfast determination, determined to find success where they thought it would be. Today's guest, Nigel Eccles, co-founder of FanDuel, Flick, and StarStock, is a serial and successful entrepreneur, but he's also a pragmatist. FanDuel, the multi-billion dollar daily fantasy sports company, wasn't a pure idea created on the cliche cocktail napkin during a discussion amongst friends over adult beverages. FanDuel started out as HubDub. The original idea was an online political prediction market. It failed because as Nigel himself said, HubDub didn't really have a good business model. I can see where that would be a problem. But Nigel isn't the type to just pack up and turn off the lights. He looked at what they had created and thought about how to pivot it into a new and different market. Sports. He and his HubDub team pivoted. I'm guessing, and he may not admit this, they pivoted because his fear of failure drove him to see other options for his success, other pathways. And FanDuel has been successful. At the time Nigel sold his interest, FanDuel had around a $450 million valuation. A few years later, it's now valued at $11.2 billion. His creation has changed the world. And like most entrepreneurs, one genius move isn't enough. Nigel is now focused on new startups, Flick, the ultimate chat app for sports influencers and their fans, and Starstock, the stock market for f- sports cards. Both incredibly cool ideas that I've spent an inordinate amount of time on lately. Let's get into it. Here's Nigel Eccles, co-founder of FanDuel, Flick, and Starstock. Hi, Nigel. How are you doing today? I'm very good. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, this is exciting. I'm very excited to speak with you. In preparation, I tend to be one of those people that does a lot of research before every interview. Mm -hmm. I read probably about 20 different articles on you and I kept seeing the term math geek and the most controversial player in the world of sports entertainment. I mean, these were descriptors that were used for you. Um, How would you describe yourself and how would you kind of describe your journey to where you are now? Uh, I mean, you start with the hard
1: questions. Um, <laughs> uh, how would I describe myself? Uh, I don't often do that from uh, the first thing. Like, I'd say I describe myself by what sort of interests me. And I um, like I love um, I love uh, creating sort of marketplaces and communities um, in, and particularly around sports. I love. Um, I've always loved sort of probability theory and gambling, essentially, um, both sort of academically and also practically. It's just fun, it's entertainment. Right. Um, but I, I do love the, I love kind of games like FanDuel it was and, and uh, even like other products like, like poker that are beatable, right? Like I don't love slot machines. I find them like incredibly boring or you know, you just behind it and sometimes you get lucky. I don't love lotteries. I think lotteries are the most boring product ever built. Um, whereas something like daily fantasy sports is fascinating because it's beatable and if it's, you know, if you apply, you know, knowledge to it, you can beat it. Um, that I think is fascinating.
0: I'm with you. I love poker because I love the strategy behind it mm-hmm. and the odds and the numbers and all that that goes into it. It's like human yeah. behavior mixed yeah. with data and and, yeah. and odds. It's, I love yeah, that. It's
1: fascinating, right?
0: It really is. And I want to go to Vegas with you because um, <laughs> I have a feeling you're a lot smarter than I am. So... It's well doc. This is one of the things I find fascinating and I love this about entrepreneurs and people with the spirit like you have. Mm -hmm. It's well documented that FanDuel started out as a different product. It was hubbed up. Right. And there was it it was for those who aren't familiar with it. It was like a news politics product Mm -hmm. that was based on competing and and predicting Mm -hmm. what was going to happen. Yeah. And you and your team. Took what was a somewhat unsuccessful venture, I would gather, mm-hmm. and pivoted. Oh, you turned yeah. to something else. You mm-hmm. leaned into daily fantasy sports, mm-hmm. created and disrupted an entire industry. So on a grand scale, what led you to the ability to pivot? And is that why a lot of businesses fail? Is like an unwillingness to get off their stance or get off where they are and pivot into something else?
1: Yeah. Um Pivotings, it's funny when we pivoted in and 2009 not many people had done it and PayPal famously did it uh, people didn't really talk about it because it was related really a nation of failure um, it everyone loves the uh, the sort of hero's journey that people talk about oh you know we spent five six years of you know eating failure every day before it was successful um, and some startups are like that um, most startups, what happens is you kind of grapple around in a kind of general area to find something that works, and then you build that to absolute scale. And then when people like you ask, you know, ask me about my journey, then you forget about the kind of grappling, and you kind of say, "Well, you know, one day I had this vision, you know." And <laughs> like some some startups are just amazing. Like Airbnb has told its origin story so many times, and it's got bigger and more elaborate. They romanticize everything. It. Yeah, they romanticize it and. You know, because the, the true story is just a lot messier. Um, a famous one was like eBay, that the, the origin story of it was that his um, girlfriend wanted to buy or sell Pez dispensers. Well, actually that wasn't true. The true story was that uh, Pierre Omidar um, was fascinated by markets and wanted to create a perfect marketplace. Right. But every time he said that to journalists, they were like, they don't really know what to write here. Um, so, you know, company formations is messy. Um, why companies fail, oh, so many reasons. Um, like I, I always loved the um, uh, Paul Graham point where when he analyzed all the Y Combinator companies and their, like Y Combinator includes Airbnb, so some of the right. biggest successes of the last 10 years. And he said the companies that failed were the ones that stopped, you know, the ones that just stopped. Like they were the ones that gave up. Oh, no, his term was the companies that fails were the founders who gave up. And I always thought it was like, I thought it was a really great point um, because we've seen startups or I've seen founders that have kind of persisted and persisted and persisted and then finally they have got to something and I've seen ones give up. And the ones that give up have a 100% like failure record. The ones that persisted, you know, not all of them have really got somewhere, <laughs> but right. they usually have got to something. Um, and the question of whether it was just like a small exit, or it was a you know a lifestyle, like genuinely a lifestyle business, or a multi you know billion dollar exit, you know sort of somewhere in between. So yeah, the reason like I do think the number one killer is sort of giving up. Um, there's lots of other reasons. Like um, another top reason is like founders falling out. <laughs> uh, yeah, founder founder decides to go back to school. That's a big reason. You know, particularly among young founders, founder decides that they need a salary and want to go back and work in a big company and, and they're going to do the startup on the side. That, that's a big killer as well. So lots of them and usually they're some variant of, of just kind of giving up.
0: It's interesting what you brought up early though in that in that answer was that somewhat of pivoting is admitting failure and that's hard for people to do yeah. sometimes, right?
1: Yeah. Well, it's, it's sort of admitting a failure to the original vision because when you go out and raise money, when you hire people. When you convince uh, co-founders, you, you, no one goes out and says, "I've got this great idea. It's not really that well formed, but it's in this kind of general market, and it's going to be amazing, right?" Like, because <laughs> you can't—you imagine that's like a terrible pitch. No investor is going to invest in that unless you're like a third time around entrepreneur and you get, you know, you get this, like, you, you get, you get a pass, you know. But you yeah. know, most of the time, it's like, "I've got this great idea. It sounds super compelling. You're like, wow, I think people would love that." And so you have to sell that, and then you build a product, you launch it, and users couldn't care less, right? Yeah. And then you're like, oh, okay, yeah, you know what? We're missing these features. And you start to add all these other features, and users still couldn't care less, right? And, yeah. and then, like, that's the kind of the typical journey. And some entrepreneurs I've seen have, like, kept on the, well, if we just add this, if we just add this, and, and there comes a point where the, I think good entrepreneurs go, this is not a we add features problem. This is a we totally misread these customers <laughs> we problem. It. Yeah. And and you know, and the, the, the pivot, doing a pivot well is we totally misread these customers. Um, but you know what they would really love It's kind of similar to what we're doing, is this. And, right. and move from what you're doing to something that is in a similar space or use a similar technology and go in that direction.
0: So how much do things change? Because obviously FanDuel went through a cycle as well where you have an idea that you're bringing to the market and trying to see if it works, right? Mm -hmm. And you go from that as a a co-founder idea originator Mm -hmm. to then it's a successful product and it's out there. And now you're the CEO running a company day to day. How much of a change in mentality and mindset and just all that focus changes from when you're on that founder cycle of trying to yeah. generate an idea versus actually maintaining and growing a company.
1: Yeah, it, it is very different. It's a very different skill set. Um, it's uh, I would say personally early stage is typically more fun, right? Because early <laughs> stage is like, hey, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we had X and you know, you sit down with your co-founder and we're like, you know, we could build that in like two to three weeks. Two or three weeks, you have it. You know, company at scale is, wouldn't it be cool if we could do X? You speak to your CTO and he's like, you know, that touches on like lots of parts of the code base. And I think if, you know, if we started now, like we're not going to get it by, for next football season. Uh, right. So maybe the fall and you're like, are you like, really? Like what happened? Um, And, you know, you also you're like your day job becomes much less the things that certainly I love, like product and marketing in more like HR, right? Like yeah. it's like we have these HR issues and, you know, we have people, you know, we have issues of like what's our, um, you know, quarterly performance review process and those sort of things. And I think some of the best early stage founders have, when they've got the scale, they find ways to put in processes that they're not dealing with that the really, the kind of the processy, somewhat boring stuff. They have maybe somebody to do that. And it allows them to still to be innovative because if you become that sort of process-driven company, you lose the flair that that really is what's valuable in a startup.
0: I love Um, that. It's so true. The the,
1: the founder Reed Reed Hastings wrote about it about his company before Netflix, right? And he talked about it, and he said, you know, this company before they were the startup, they were innovative, and as they started to scale you know, they started running the challenges. Like one of their salespeople was in DC and the client was staying in the Four Seasons. And so the salesperson was like, well, I'll stay in the Four Seasons. And like, he's like, we're a startup. So he comes back and Reed sees this and he's like, this is ridiculous. We have to have a policy. And so they start writing the policy and the policy document yeah. gets built bigger and, bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And before you know it, everyone's trying to follow the rules and no one's trying to, you know, you know break the rules and innovate. And, mm-hmm. and the company just turns into stasis.
0: I I, I love that. I think it's so important that agility you have early on, but then also Mm -hmm. just that the mental agility too, like the ability to think bigger than just process. I remember going personally from being a TV producer where I was very focused on the creative side and on the journalism side to then being in management as a news director. And all Mm -hmm. of a sudden I'm dealing with an employee who's an employee who's complaining about the height of their chair. And you're like, I'm so mired in other things now I can't be creative. So it's just such a different shift in mentality. Mm -hmm. One thing, another thing that really impressed me in in researching was that you took culture very seriously Mm -hmm. and transparency is a big part of that. So when you were at FanDuel and I'm imagining with your new venture flick, Mm -hmm. which we'll talk a lot about as well, you hosted weekly Ask Nigel video conferences with everybody within the company and all the different satellite offices. So you were open and transparent and you handled questions coming in how much does business success translate and is tied to workplace culture?
1: I think like over the long term, 100% correlation. There's there's very few iconic companies with really bad culture. Um, I'm sure somebody can find some counterexamples, but over right. the long term, because what happens in those companies is they become very political. Um, it, it's not about growing the pie. It's about maneuvering for you to get more of it and to hell with the rest of the company and those sort of cultures do not create value. They not, they don't create like really successful businesses. Um, I, we did, uh, we did focus a lot on trying to create that open culture. Um, it's very hard to, um, draw a direct correlation and say, well, because we did X, we got Y, um, like I would even go beyond it and say, look, we, focused and we didn't get everything right By nor means everything right but we focused on trying to create this like really open culture where uh, people were putting the the company first um we also wanted to create a culture where people really wanted to work there like you know really loved it you know say you know there wasn't politics um and what i will say is that you can definitely detect that this is a you know this is a place where people want to come work at. So you can kind of see that, you know, this is a good environment. I think the other thing that we saw with FanGil was whenever FanGil ran into real challenges which it did in twenty fifteen, twenty sixteen, um, we had very good retention of people. Like um, you know, in a company I think with a weaker culture, people would have head out the doors. So they'd been like, look, this is, you know, why would I stick around? Um, and I, I think we it, not only did we very good retention, the company very successfully navigated through those issues, and that's where culture really matters. Like when you're in a rocket ship, and everything's going up to the right, um, culture doesn't matter that much. It's whenever things start to go wrong, then you start to see. Well, actually, did you invest in people? Did you invest in the culture? And so the company really held together and pulled together when things went wrong, or did everybody head to the doors?
0: I love that you brought in retention, too, because so often people think about retention as a terminology used for consumers, right, your customers mm-hmm. and retaining yeah. your customers, but retaining your employees and your good yeah. staff and your people is yeah. just as important because nobody wants to go through these entire cycles of retraining and rehiring and reprocessing everything. It slows yeah. everything down.
1: Yeah, and it's more than just people sticking around. It's it's that they're excited to be in that role that they you know they remain excited about the vision that they love coming to work. Like, some of them might laugh. Like, you know, uh, I've been in jobs where I, like the idea, like I worked in a very large consultancy and they used to talk about running to work, and I just sort of thought that's ridiculous. Like, you know, that was. I really enjoyed the job, but like the idea of running to work, and it was only really when I got into startups. I'm like, I totally get that. Like, I you know I work with people I love working with them. Um, we uh and we're doing something that's incredibly exciting and so i can absolutely see you know our team work incredibly hard and i think part of the reason we're creating crowds is because of those reasons they love working with the people they work with and they're building something they're really excited about they want to see it in the world um so that so i think it's uh you know it's doable in startups less so i find in big companies
0: And you just to see your product out there and successful, I mean, that kind of bands people together as well, I'd imagine. Yeah. And especially when it's something
1: like. Success helps. (laughs) Yeah. Like whenever it's like, wouldn't it be cool if, and, you know, three weeks later you're seeing, you know, hundreds or thousands of people actually using it. Yeah. That's a, that's a pretty cool thing to see it absolutely is. So
0: you launched FanDuel in 2009 and in mm-hmm. 2012 you have another major competitor come to the market in DraftKings. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How competitive are you by nature? Because I tend to be that person that sees competition and says, "Let's crush them," you know? Mm-hmm. And then but I, I talk to so many people who think bigger and differently than that. So how would you characterize yeah. yourself? Are you a naturally competitive person or you say this just puts a more focus on our product?
1: Yeah. So so I'm naturally very competitive. I think most startup founders are. Um, everyone says, you know, oh, we want to focus on the customer. And that's true, but they also want to win the market. Um, yeah. But the the weird thing, though, is and there's a saying that you sometimes hear, which is blame the game, not the gamer. And that is a lot of the time true in tech because tech, a lot of markets in tech, unlike in other businesses, are winner takes all um you know there's there's only one ebay um and really probably only one amazon and and even if it's not winner takes all the number one player ha- has a massive market share it's like a 70% market share so if i were to launch a coffee shop in my local village you know at best i might you know depending on how big it is have like a 10% market share but i'm never right. going to have 70% right um if i and most businesses outside of tech are not winner takes all but tech is and what that means is, you have to um, you have to be paranoid about becoming number one. You can't say, you know what? We've got a solid business, and we'll just grow at our rate. and We can ignore the competition because if you do that, then you just get you'll get blown away. And then, secondly, what you have to remember is, tech also has um, your competitors potentially have a wall of money behind them. And so uh, you're like, hey, we've got a solid business. We don't re- think we need to raise more money. Oh, wait a second, your number two competitor has just raised half a billion dollars. Mm-hmm. W- what do you do? Um, and you don't have the option of saying, well, I, I, you know, we like our business as it is. We don't think we need to raise any more money. And so the game that most people are in in tech is that they really have to dominate their niche. Um, otherwise they risk not being anywhere at all. And so the game, in a way, is um, it kind of creates the outcome, which is like, you have to win. um, Yeah. uh, Because second place is is, is nowhere.
0: I think a competitive nature in this industry, in this world, in this, you know, in the sports industry as a whole is essential. I really do. But I mean, not everybody has that in them. And I just think that that desire to want to beat the other person and be ahead is
1: kind of important. But one of the things to note there's a nuance here which is and when you have staff members you and co-founders you need people who are incredibly competitive in a team setting right and, and you yeah. know they they you know they will sort of bleed for the team and they will compete with the other companies but they won't do it internally um you know so they will call out other people because that person sort of letting down the team not because they think hey i i'd quite like his his office or i want to you know again and not getting someone getting people who are like the right type of competitive is super important that's a great distinction no
0: i'm glad you brought that up so honestly look back and tell me what's the best part of having your product vision become successful because i have to imagine you go through this cycle of creative ideas and you push things out there. And when it gets accepted by the marketplace mm-hmm. and it starts to stick and it starts to grow and you're expanding, like that's got to be a great feeling. But like, what's the best part of that?
1: I think there's a couple of things that I've genuinely found really exciting. One is the point at which you see it really working. And you—and if you've ever launched products, you kind of know when that is. And when people ask me, when is that point? I said, you're not there yet, <laughs> because <laughs> you know, right? You yeah. know, whenever you know, whenever users are signing up organically, um, whenever if your products a marketplace things are selling, um, you know that point is is incredibly exciting. Like you, this was something that you started off at the kitchen table as a sketch, and you put together a team and and they built it, and people are not using it. That's incredibly exciting. The other one that's incredibly exciting is when you actually meet your users. And they start talking about your product, and you've never met them before, and they often have insights that you never even thought about. And so they actually have this interaction with the product that you conceived, and they kind of see it in a totally different way, or maybe in a similar way in some ways, but in different ways. That's really exciting as well. Yeah. I could see that being exciting. It would be really exciting.
0: So there's a common saying out there that people, a lot of people can come up with one idea but it's Mm -hmm. hard to come up with a second. Right. Right. Uh, You're in that cycle right now. And we're going to talk a lot about that. Mm -hmm. But what about doubt? Like you come up with FanDuel, it's successful, things are going great. You move on from that and you start Mm -hmm. coming up with other ideas and other things. Do you ever go through periods of doubt thinking like, I don't know if I'll ever be able to recreate that magic again or again. Is this where the confidence comes in and a little bit of that competitiveness to say, no, I believe it.
1: Oh, no, yeah, we had, when we left Fancho, we had, a, no, we definitely had a lot of doubt. Um, in fact, whenever we we were naming the company, Fleck, um, we were going to call it Bottled Lightning because <laughs> we sort of <laughs> felt we caught lightning in a bottle once. And um, maybe that did suggest that we were, we felt it was a one-time event. So we we definitely did realize it was going to be hard to repeat the success there. Um, we, uh we definitely, we, we definitely had, uh, you know, question marks about that. I would say that, in a way, uh, we were kind of trust the process, which was, look, if we, um, if we start with really good people and we hire really good people, and we work in a sector that we understand or are committed to, understanding and we and we raise money and we give it time. We mightn't be right on the very first go but we believe we'll get there so that was kind of the belief um and we flick did not become what it is today in a linear fashion we kind of had a different concept we we also sort of like look we had a pivot once before it was somewhat traumatic but we got there and we built a multi-billion dollar business so we we kind of sort of thought that was a new one it's like look we this team's great uh we really you know we're really committed to this um we can definitely raise the money and so we have time and so let let's go forward so that that kind of was our you know our starting point
0: let's talk about flick so it's mm-hmm. a group chat platform mm-hmm. that incorporates live scores real-time fan discussion polls predictive games right in your wheelhouse right yeah. um how do you how do you disrupt the traditional sports fan experience we've been dealing with this for a long time sports yeah. has been somewhat static and yet yeah. it needs to modernize how do you do that
1: yeah, so we kind of just started with the fan in mind and sort of thought, we spent a lot of time talking to fans about how they watch sports. Um, and then we sort of came to this analogy, which was like, where's the very best fan uh, experience? And we sort of said, like, it's in stadium. Um, and then we sort of said, but well, where do you watch most of your sports? And it was like in their living room or in their in their bedroom. And we sort of went from there and we said, well, we sort of asked, well, what's better about being in the stadium? And a big part was the social experience. And then we also looked over to eSports and we sort of said, you know, Twitch is an incredible product. It's both, I can both watch and engage with the rest of the audience at the same time. And we, which raised the question for us is like, why isn't traditional sports more like that? Why can't I have that experience traditional sports? And really from those kind of, I'd say two insights, is what what it produced like? So when I was growing up,
0: we get tickets to a game in Boston because that's where I grew mm-hmm. up. We'd take the train into the city, we'd sit in our seat for three hours. We maybe would buy a jersey, we'd buy some food, whatever. Mm-hmm. We'd get puck on the train and we'd go home. That was our fan behavior. That was our fan yeah. experience. Times are different now. The mm-hmm. fans expect a different user experience and fan engagement. Yeah. Or actually, I should throw it out to you what do you think today's fan wants and how does flick help deliver that
1: yeah so so what you're describing actually is a is a fun so, you know social experience right. um what i sort of think what we're sort of we're more focused on is that sort of at home experience and we're like look why isn't that as much fun as the experience of going to the game like why is being at the game better right the The visuals are worse, right? There's no Mm -hmm. replays, largely. Um, And so, and it's often cold and the food's sometimes not great and the parking's really expensive, but it's still better, right? Like it's still like you wouldn't trade it if you had free tickets to go, you still go. Um, And a big one for us was the social experience. And it's not just the people you're with, it's like the, I'm with 20,000 other fans of my team, the experience of being there. And so, what we think this, the, the at-home experience lacks is that, that social connection, that feeling of being with all of these other fans, of my team watching the game with me, um, and that's what we sort of envisage that Flick brings, and we know that it does bring with the groups that we, we have, so that, that's really the, the sort of the vision. So, I feel like the
0: younger audience is the, is the the market that needs to be captured in a lot of ways, right? Mm-hmm. Because they're not gravitating to the games as much. Obviously, yeah. we have strange conditions right now, but yeah, yeah. the younger fans are gravitating towards other platforms. They're going yeah. towards esports and, and, and hanging That's out right. there. The traditional bat and ball leagues are mm-hmm. struggling with that younger yeah. audience. It do, does flick. Do you think that kind of helps this scenario and makes the game more approachable
1: and more attractive to a younger audience? Is that kind of your focus in a way too? I, I definitely think so. And if you think about it, um, sports are intrinsically social. Um, so if you think about your own fandom or friends' fandom, it's it relates to you know uh, what your teams your parents or your uh, family supported and, and why is that important it's because you actually connect your fandom with your relationship with them right if you think of a lot of your social interaction it's like other fans that you, you know you have a relationship with them because of your common fandom um, so there's there's a big part of that relationship that experience the team because like honestly that team that you support and you're like you bleed for That's owned by a billionaire that doesn't care about you. (laughs) Let's let's be clear, right? so true. And and it's, you know, and and the players are a bunch of professional athletes that in a a moment's notice would go and play for a different team. But still, you love that team, right? And when you kind of like unpack why you love that team, it's about social relationships you have around fandom of that team. It's Mm -hmm. really about, well, I love that team. And you'll talk about the history, but when you kind of unpick the you know, the, your history with the team, a lot of it is about your relationship, with your friends, and your family, and that connection with that team. And so what I, f- and, and you know, continued professionalization of the sport um, somewhat removes that. I think what Flick helps is bring more social that people can connect with other fans. Like we find on Flick, for example, soccer, which is one of our strongest areas. We have a lot of users on it are like, uh from africa or from the far east and they love being on a platform and they can connect with other man united supporters or other Arsenal yeah. supporters um and so they're building those relationships with other fans and so again it's like that sort of social component
0: yeah and it makes the world a little smaller right it brings oh, so everyone together yeah yeah, yeah absolutely. for sure so I've always, I've felt, especially recently, like uh, traditional sports are are lacking innovative minds. And I don't mean that mm-hmm. as an insult, but I mean like from the team and organization side, because they have these long-term media rights deals and because yeah. selling out games and bringing in fans yeah. has always been pretty easy for them, mm-hmm. they haven't had this demand to innovate. Yeah, And so it feels like that has somewhat stagnated the... Fan experience or, yes. you know, con- connecting with the younger fans. I mm-hmm. mean, baseball is in a lot of ways dying. And, and, yes. and if you look at their audience numbers, um, is there is there a need and a dearth of innovation in traditional sports? Is that just where the problem lies or
1: is it something bigger than that? There 100 percent is a dearth of innovation in sports and um, and it's better or worse on different leagues by by far by far. The best is the NBA. Yeah. Um, and probably the worst is MLB. And yeah. NFL is is in the middle. Um, and like a big part of it, how you can see it, is their willingness to work with startups um, and their willingness to be sort of flexible and how they work. Um, I often look at the leagues as these, um, companies are really in either two modes. They're either in a growth mode, where like growing the size of the pie, or they're in harvest mode. They're like, it's, you know, the pie is static and we're just gonna extract the most money out of it. And um, the leagues really typically start on the harvest side. Like they'll talk about innovation, but if it means a dollar less to them, then they're like, forget about it. Like we, we yeah. will we will sell this to the highest bidder. And if a startup wants to work with us, then like then we might throw them a bone, but really we want ESPN and the big networks to give us a ton of money for these assets. Mm. And I think in a static world, that makes sense, right? Like that's your job. Like if you're, if I'm a billionaire owner, I want them to extract the most value out of these assets. In the world we are in today where things are rapidly changing and ESPN and NBC and CBS are losing their dominance, um, that's a very dangerous place to be because they're continuing to rely on those companies to spend more and more money with them. And they lose, they're losing audience. And, and it's most noticeable uh, with the NFL where every year people come out with the NFL numbers and most years, typically their numbers have been down, but some years they've been up slightly. What's been missing in the noise there is in their young fans, that sort fans under the age of uh, I think 25, they've, they're They've in like year seven of straight declines. Um, yeah. Where those younger fans are disconnecting from the sport and I don't really see what they're doing that's changing that. Um, and if they continue to say, no, we're going to keep these right. And they're only exclusively going to be on ESPN and NBC, then they're going to continue to be on a path of extracting a large and large amount of money within a smaller and smaller number of people. So
0: true. I, I think all these problems too existed before coronavirus. Oh, it's just, it's just, this has sped it up. This has mm-hmm. made it even more obvious, right? Yeah. Um, how do sports businesses, not just the big teams, not just the Yankees, not just mm-hmm. the Dallas Cowboys, how do sports businesses survive this time? Sports adjacent businesses, sports everywhere. Yeah. I mean, everybody's struggling in some ways based on what's happening with coronavirus mm-hmm. and, and the lack of fans at games and revenue streams changing. How do, how do they survive and get through this?
1: Yeah. Well, they have a short-term issue. like, I, and, and that. Like, I'm no expert in filling stadiums, but it doesn't matter because they can't. <laughs> but, like, right. you know, they have a short term sort of funding issue they need to get through. Luckily, they're all pretty much owned by billionaires. And so, you know, they, they should be well weathered to, to get through this. But they're, what they shouldn't lose sight of is their long term issue, which is if you lose a cohort of um, fans, you never get them. Um, people do not become NFL fans in their thirties. Um, they become fans because they became fans in their teens and they continue to be fans through that. And what they the risk they're seeing today is that they lose this cohort at a young age and they will never get them. Yeah. Um, so, and what do they do to need to connect with them? Well, they need to be where the fans are. So they need to be on Instagram, they need to be on TikTok. Um, the NBA, which has done a really good job on this, they need to follow their athletes, and they need to make their athletes stars. They also need to, you know, in effect, embrace the causes that their athletes embrace. And you know, it's interesting that there's been obviously there's criticism of the NBA of, um, in some quarters of embracing uh, like Black Lives Matters and some of those things. One of the things I would say is the NBA didn't have a choice, um, mm. and it's actually because what shifted here is the power from the leagues to the actual athletes, um. And so that if the athletes are saying these things matter to us and we're organized, then the leagues really have to listen. Um, and that's been a really big shift over the last uh, you know, five to 10 years where the athletes are really driving the agenda and the NBA is listening to that and they're going with it, whereas the other leagues have been more resistant.
0: It's very true. I think the NBA has led in a lot of ways. And you alluded Mm -hmm. to that earlier, too. Let's get back to being an entrepreneur a little bit. Um, Mm -hmm. How important is market timing? It feels like when you go through the history of products and product releases, Mm -hmm. that there are some products and ideas that come a little bit before their time, and some that come just a little bit late, and somebody else stole Mm -hmm. that market from them. Uh, Not only why why is market timing important, but why is this the right time for the flick
1: to really take hold and take over? I I I'm a bit ambivalent about the concept of market timing and and I, I definitely have seen it I've seen products that come out and the timing has is, is, is been right but a lot of times the products that people say oh it's too early they just weren't that good uh-huh. <laughs> like you know like a, a classic one is like um you know video calling people talk about video calling for like 50 years right right um and the uh, you know I use those products like 20 years ago and they were terrible, right? Like, that's why we didn't use them. Um, And so like, and you might say, well, that was early. Well, I guess it was early given the technology wasn't there. Um, So I definitely think there's a large part of it is about, you know, using technology that isn't a mature enough state to deliver a product that actually delivers a good consumer experience. Like that's kind of how I think about it. And so when you see something that's early, it's usually because the technology is just not mature. And, and you look and you go, well, it's early. And it's like, well, yeah, it's, it's also bad. Right. <laughs> um, and so it's not replacing the phone call because, well, you know, the video's choppy. You know, it's, I remember, um, what was it, Citrix? You remember uh, oh, yeah. web? What was it called? Um, basically, the product that Zoom was uh, built to replace it because it was so yeah. bad. Mm mm-hmm. um, and, you know, everyone is like, well, it was early. No, it was bad. It really was bad. <laughs> and that's why we dreaded using it because it was such a nightmare to use. Um, so I, I, I think early a lot of time is just the products are, are, are just kind of bad, to be honest. Yeah, and
0: it is interesting, too, is that it's probably like if you went through the analogy of in 2009, people might not have been saying, like, I need Daily Fantasy, you know, Daily Fantasy yeah. right now. But when you yeah. bring it to them and it's good, oh, and yeah. you introduce them to the concept, yeah. then they know they want it and then it takes hold.
1: Oh, yeah. no, no nobody, nobody was asking for it then. But, you know, I think if we had launched Daily Fantasy Sports like two years earlier, I yeah. think we would have had a similar, like, you know, if we had had the same product and the technology mm. was there, um I think we would have I think it it could have worked then, and similarly, I think if we had launched it two years later it it similarly would have been yeah this is this is a great product,
0: yeah, it comes down to the product being mm. right and and delivering on a consumer experience yeah
1: and look, there was a couple of sort of products similar to FanJuel prior to it. They just weren't really that good and, yeah. and, and you know they didn't really build a big user base, and I think FanJuel was the first product that you know had that concept with a with a good product
0: so you've been part of the startup entrepreneur space most of your career other than Mm -hmm. you know you like you said you did some consulting work early on um does it take a special type of personality for an employee of these worlds as a startup or an entrepreneur to be able to handle that roller coaster ride because it does Mm -hmm. seem different working for a startup versus some established business
1: um i i think somewhat i think it's true i think it's quite a broad Number of people who can either be company founders or work in early stage startups. I I will say that if you're someone who doesn't like ambiguity, um, that wants their career kind of plotted out, that you know needs to have clarity of what their role is, startups are not for you. And like it's just as simple as that. Like there's there's better place for you. You may have you know a different set of skills i just wouldn't if i had a friend who was that sort of person i wouldn't advise him to go into startups Mm because i think they'd have a pretty miserable experience um but you know there's people i know who actually are quite risk averse and they they overcame that to 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 start companies and um and have been really successful so there's um there's people i know that are non-technical who've been very successful in tech startups so there's quite a broad range of people who can be successful in startups just just not the the not the people who love certainty <laughs> yeah so there's another
0: sports adjacent business that you are an angel investor in mm-hmm. uh star star stock yeah 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 uh which is focused on memorabilia and sports yeah. cards sports cards yes. now i was a huge baseball card mm-hmm. collector back in the day matter of fact i've got some up behind me oh, right, right yeah, now yeah. i got some of my old folders i've got them all f- yeah. i've got like the 80s are covered yes. <laughs> um so it seemed to me though that that market kind of dried up for a, a couple of decades. Why do you believe
1: this mm-hmm. card concept is making a comeback? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so sports trading cards, incredible market. Um, you know, it's a, it's a thing that's been around for well over 100 years, the original tobacco cards. And the thing that really excited me about it was that, and this might seem a very obvious statement, which is the value of the card tracks the performance of the athlete. So if somebody becomes LeBron, their value goes through the roof. And if they become the person who was drafted second, I don't know who else was in that draft. Yeah. You know, their value like trends towards zero. And that to me was incredibly exciting because it means there's a way that I could buy a little bit of LeBron. I could buy a stock in LeBron. And if I'm right, make make a lot of money and, and have an asset that's incredibly valuable. That was exciting. Um, what happened in the early 90s in the, the card market was that a number of things happened. One was the leagues had licenses with multiple manufacturers like Upper Deck and Tops yeah. and Fleer, and they just went to massive overproduction. Yes. And so what happened was, and then secondly, they had sort of trained the market to think that these were valuable assets. And so they were overproducing, people were overbuying because they thought they were valuable. And basically, when you have overproduction of anything like we had earlier this year with oil, with too much oil, we didn't have enough demand, the price collapsed. Um, and that's what happened in trading cards. What's happening today is that the leagues realize that that wasn't good for uh, for their brand. What they've done is they've gone exclusive with one provider. So for NFL and NBA, it's Panini. For baseball, it's Tops. And those Uh, those manufacturers also have learned from the 90s which was it was great for a couple of years and then it was terrible for a decade that they don't want to go through that again and so they deliberately are limiting production Um, the other things that have made a big difference is the advent of grading so um, uh, it's great to have a, a rookie LeBron car but is it a is it one of these called a psa 10 which is like almost a perfect card that's very different from one that's got like a dog ate corner and so that one is much more valuable um and so what we've seen over the last three years is this market really come back in in a way where we're seeing these cards have actually real uh, assets of value
0: i'm hopeful because i'm thinking i can pay for my college my kids college education maybe now if <laughs> if the value goes back up and i've got all yeah. of these cards like ooh, i'm getting excited well, it
1: really depends it really depends when you buy your cards <laughs> my How barry Bonds rookie
0: year card you think that would uh, be worth anything
1: no it could be something i think i have six it, of them <laughs> right you know it really depends like the, yeah. the cards in the in the early 90s like a lot of them are overproduced and so they they're not of value the cards earlier than that can be yeah. very valuable LeBron rookies are very valuable. Oh yeah, will be, you know cards are very valuable. So this was the '80s um, for me. I was
0: a I was 80s. a ten, ten year old in the '80s, so I got a lot yeah. of '80s baseball you cards. Could,
1: you know, depending on which, what, we'll what see. you have, there we'll could see. be some.
0: So sports cards have always been a, a low tech product, right? I mm-hmm. mean, it's very tangible; it's a physical asset. Right. How, how do you bring tech into this product equation yeah. and and make it more accessible to everybody? Yeah,
1: and that's that's been a huge advantage and it's huge handi- handicap with sports cards. So. Um, the huge advantage is it's a tangible asset, right? So when yeah. people were talking to me about crypto and crypto collectibles, the problem is it's not really tangible. How do I put yeah. value on something I can't see, that I, I can't easily trade? Um, and so there's crypto collectibles like crypto kitties that basically boomed and then they went to zero. Um, whereas trading cards, some of them have gone to several million dollars. In fact, there was a Gretzky card just sold last week. I saw week that. For, yeah. uh, over a million dollars. Um, LeBron cards have sold for over a couple of million my Trout cards have sold uh, in over a million. So this a tangible asset, that's great. The problem of being a tangible asset is how do you trade it? And today, most of the market is on eBay. Um, yeah. And so uh, I give you a situation on eBay, uh, about two years ago, Terry McLaurin, um, who was a rookie into well, then the Redskins, right. um, and his one of his auto cards was trading for about a dollar. I could buy that on eBay um great it's a dollar plus five dollar shipping fee i get it several weeks later his um his card jumps to 15 dollars when he catches like four touchdowns in the first three games incredible player and i'm like great well i bought it for a dollar i'm not going to sell it for 15 well i sell it for 15 um oh yeah i also had to pay tax on the uh, on that first dollar plus the shipping and so i'm really at like seven dollars i'm selling it for 15 i'm taking like you know 13 percent out for ebay and so for that one dollar that i bought it for the 15 that 14 dollars i made i probably make about five dollars yeah you're not realizing so the benefit yeah i'm not realizing the benefit and and i've made five dollars on my insight right right so what i really wanted to do was to buy a hundred of those cards um and i also don't really want them to be shipped to me because that's going to be really expensive and i don't have to go around a hundred different sellers buying it what I really want to do is buy a hundred of them, not touch them and then sell them a month later for $15. And, and that's what we, that was the idea behind Starstock because what Starstock does is users send in all of their rookie cards into Starstock. Uh, what we do is we open the packages, we look at them, we, we give them a light like grading, like an A, B or a C, and then we put them in a vault. And you can then go and see here's my entire collection. I can see each of them visually. And I can price them up. I can then go to the player page um, or the the card page of that card. And as a buyer, I can go and buy them in bulk. And even though there might be sold from like 20 or 30 different people, I can buy them one click. So just to give you an example, this season, um, uh, Talon Horton Tucker, um, rookie into into the Lakers. Uh, So his uh, his, uh, Panini Optic, uh rookie card was trading for, you could have bought him for about a dollar, up until about early early December. Yeah. Well, he has his first uh, couple of preseason games. He's incredible. LeBron yeah. comes out and says this guy's the real deal. Yeah. And he's now trading for eighteen dollars. Oh my gosh! Yeah. So and and this is all on Starstock, and the reason you can do that is because we have almost two hundred of his cards on our platform and so you can basically go and say I want to buy 20 of them yeah and so that's when we saw the price shoot up from uh, from one dollar up to uh, twenty dollars
0: I can see why this plays into your your field of view right like the mm-hmm. the trading the predictive the you know the competitive nature of it it's yeah. almost like stock trading in a way but on on athlete futures it's really yeah, it's, it's, it's a like cool a Robin concept. Hood
1: for for sports um that like if that. you knew If you knew that uh, this guy was going to be amazing, um, you're like, hey, I saw him at college. Yeah. I know know this guy's going to be great. The market just doesn't appreciate it. And I want to buy 100 of his cards. You could do that on Starstock. And if you were right, you would be sitting, that $100 $100 you put in would be now worth $2,000. Uh, it's so
0: cool. It's a really cool idea. And I don't even think I fully understood it until we had this mm-hmm. conversation. So I'm glad we're talking about it because it's, it's really cool. Uh, we'll finish up with this. This has been a great mm-hmm. conversation. I've really Thank enjoyed you. talking to you and I've taken enough of your day already. Um, I was recent. We're going to go global here. We're going to go macro mm-hmm. level again. Uh, I was recently asked by a college program what the must have skills for their students to thrive in the sports industry are? Where is the market Mm -hmm. right now? What do students need? What what should we be teaching them? Uh, I gave an answer. I'd love Mm -hmm. to hear kind of what your thoughts are.
1: What should we be teaching them? Oh boy. (laughs) It's a big one. Uh, Like we, you know, at Starstock, um, more so than Fleck, you know, we've hired a, a lot of operators, like people who are like processing cards as sort of an entry dealing with customer service. And, and they will they're they will go on to management positions and senior level positions as, as that company grows. Um, you know the thing that we really value is just commitment. You know and you know a yeah. passion uh, to work in it. Uh, the people that have generally not got jobs with the company are people who've like you know given a sense of entitlement. Who you know who kind of thought that they would come in at a management level that didn't right. want to do the work. Um, uh, I don't think that I don't know if that's really taught, uh, but that's certainly, you know, the people who have been successful. Attitude you know, matters. Sk- yeah. Yeah. Like that's been like fundamental. The skills that uh, we've really loved is the people who've like really, um, you know, you know, so I think the things we've loved are people who've got real passion for sports and can convey that, you know, we've kind of been able to see mm-hmm. it and you can see it day to day. The people who've got really strong social media skills, it's funny, like, you know, this, yep. this generation does, but it's something that we find hugely valuable. Uh, when we've hired a lot of these guys, they've been able to come in and say, hey, you know, your Instagram, there's so much we could do with it that we'd really mm-hmm. get reach. Um, like one of the great things today is a lot of the tools that we use, you don't need to work for a company to be able to get good at it. Like, Uh, actually Flick is a company we've hired somebody the other day or we hired somebody earlier this year who built up a 50,000 follower group for a Man United group Um, he didn't need to get permission he didn't need to work for a company to do it but when we went out and looked and said this guy's great you know we should hire him he knows way more about this than we do we need the skill set so that actually outside of their day to day lessons and stuff actually having a really good knowledge of social media and, and proving something on it that's that's incredibly valuable
0: totally agree got to get your brand out there right and it <laughs> is it is funny how a younger generation like you said they've grown up with this this mm-hmm. is something they know how to do yeah. it is their language it yeah. doesn't make as much sense for me or you to be doing that it makes sense for yeah. us to be hiring people that just really really Absolutely. get it understand yeah. It. Yeah. And, yeah and
1: you know they they're re- you know designers when you hire a designer um they will come under our portfolio this is the work that i've done you know if you're hiring somebody into a marketing role really today you really want to say well like i'd love to see your social media right it's not because i want to know the crazy stuff you've been doing but if you're into sports and you want to get into sports marketing i'm like well what are you doing today like yeah there's no you don't need that job to do this um you can be doing this today and and when you go along to that job it will absolutely set you apart
0: Wonderful. This is such a great interview. Thank you so much for taking all this time to explain no your cycle from FanDuel to Flick to mm-hmm. Starstock. I mean, there's so many so many great things that you're into and you have such high level experience and knowledge that you're sharing with our audience. So thank you so much, Nigel.
1: No, no problem. Thank you. Uh, it's been a fun. Thanks to
0: Nigel. What a down to earth guy. Share tons of great advice. I'd call that a big win for all of us. Thanks for listening, everyone. Remember to subscribe, share, rate, and review wherever you listen. That really helps us grow and attracts more great guests like Nigel. Nigel's team reached out to us to have him on the show. And that's because all of you have made us a platform worth listening to great guests want to be on our show so keep it up let's keep growing next week john ferguson vp of people and culture at monumental sports and entertainment that's the wizards mystics capitals esports and more the guy is a genius and the interview is amazing and he shares so much energy and strategy and advice and guidance love it you're going to be so excited to hear it let's get after it next week's going to be a big week for all of us 2021 baby